Part Five of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Five of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. Chapter Twenty Two. Barentz's return to consciousness was sudden and complete. He sat up and saw that he had fallen inside the control room. The metal door was closed behind him, and he was breathing without difficulty. He could see no sign of the crew. They must have gone after the guards, assuming he would stay unconscious. He scrambled to his feet, instinctively picking up his needle beam. He examined the weapon closely, then frowned and put it away. Why, he wondered, would the crew leave him alone in the control room, the most important part of the ship? Why would they leave him armed? He tried to remember the faces he had seen just before he collapsed. They were indistinct memories, vague and unfocused figures with hollow, dreamlike voices. Had there really been people in here? The more he thought about it, the more certain he was that he had conjured those people out of his fading consciousness. There had been no one here. He was alone in the ship's nerve center. He approached the main control board. It was divided into ten stations. Each section had its rows of dials whose slender indicators pointed to incomprehensible readings. Each had its switches, wheels, rheostats, and levers. Brent walked slowly past the stations, watching the patterns of flashing lights that ran to the ceiling and rippled along the walls. The last station seemed to be some kind of overall control for the rest. A small screen was marked Coordination, Manual, Automatic. The automatic part was lighted. There were similar screens for Navigation, Lookout, Collision Control, Subspace Entry and Exit, Normal Space Entry and Exit, and Landing. All were automatic. Further on, he found the programming screen, which clicked off the progress of the flight in hours, minutes, and seconds. Time to checkpoint one was now twenty-nine hours, four minutes, fifty-one seconds. Stopover time, three hours. Time from checkpoint to Earth, four hundred and eighty hours. The control board flashed and hummed to itself, serene and self-sufficient. Barent couldn't help feeling that the presence of a human in this temple of the machine was sacrilege. He checked the air ducts. They were set for automatic feed, giving just enough air to support the room's present human population of one. But where was the crew? Barent could understand the necessity of operating a starship largely on automatic programming systems. A structure as huge and complex as this had to be self-sufficient. But men had built it, and men had punched out the programs. Why weren't the men present to monitor the switchboards, to modify the program when necessary? Suppose the guards had needed more time on Omega. Suppose it became necessary to bypass the checkpoint and return directly to Earth. Suppose it was imperative to change destination altogether. Who reset the programs? Who gave the ship its orders? Who possessed the guiding intelligence that directed the entire operation? Barent looked around the control room. He found a storage bin filled with oxygen respirators. He put one on, tested it, and went into the corridor. After a long walk, he reached a door marked Crew's Quarters. 
Inside the room was neat and bare. The bed stood in neat rows, without sheets or blankets. There were no clothes in the closets, no personal possessions of any kind. Brent left and inspected the officers' and captains' quarters. He found no sign of recent human habitation. He returned to the control room. It was apparent now that the ship had no crew. Perhaps the authorities on Earth felt so certain of their schedules and of the reliability of their ship that they had decided a crew was superfluous. Perhaps. But it seemed to Barrent a reckless way of doing things. There was something very strange about an Earth that allowed starships to run without human supervision. He decided to suspend further judgment until he had acquired more facts. For the time being he had to think about the problems of his own survival. There was concentrated food in his pockets, but he hadn't been able to carry much water. Would the crewless ship have supplies? He had to remember the detachment of guards down below in their assembly room, and he had to think about what was going to happen at the checkpoint and what he would do about it. Barrent found that he did not have to use his own food supplies. In the officers' mess, machines still dispensed food and drink at the push of a button. Barrent didn't know if these were natural or chemically reconstituted foods. They tasted fine and seemed to nourish him, so he really didn't care. He explored part of the ship's upper levels. After becoming lost several times, he decided not to take any more unnecessary risks. The life center of the ship was its control room, and Barrent spent most of his time there. He found a viewport. Activating the switch that opened the shutters, Barrent was able to look out on the vast spectacle of stars glowing in the blackness of space. Stars without end stretched past the furthest limits of his imagination. Looking at this, Barrent felt a strong surge of pride. This was where he belonged, and those unknown stars were his heritage. The time to the checkpoint dwindled to six hours. Brent watched new portions of the control board come to life, checking and altering the forces governing the ship, preparing to land. Three and a half hours before landing, Brent made an interesting discovery. He found the central communication system for the entire ship. By turning on the receiving end, he could overhear conversations in the guardroom. He didn't learn much that was useful to him. Either through caution or lack of concern, the guards didn't discuss politics. Their lives were spent on the checkpoint, except for periods of service on the prison ship. Some of the things they said Brent found incomprehensible, but he continued to listen, fascinated by anything these men of Earth had to say. You ever go swimming in Florida? I never liked salt water. The year before I was called to the guards, I won third prize at the Dayton Orchid Fair. I'm buying a retirement villa in Antarctica. How much longer for you? Eighteen years. Well, someone's got to do it. But why me? And why no Earth leaves? You've watched the tapes. You know why. Crime is a disease. It's infectious. So what? So if you work around criminals, you run the danger of infection. You might contaminate someone on Earth. It isn't fair. Can't be helped. Those scientists know what they're talking about. Besides, the checkpoint's not so bad. If you like everything artificial, air, flowers, food, well, you can't have everything. Your family there? They want to get back Earthside. 
After five years on the checkpoint, they say you can't take Earth. The gravity gets you. I'll take gravity any time. From these conversations, Barrent learned that the grim-faced guards were human beings just like the prisoners on Omega. Most of the guards didn't seem to like the work they were doing. Like Omegans, they longed for a return to Earth. He stored the information away. The ship had reached the checkpoint, and the giant switchboard flashed and rippled, making its final adjustments for the intricacies of docking. At last the maneuver was completed, and the engines shut down to standby. Through the communication system, Barrent heard the guards leave their assembly room. He followed them down the corridors to the landing stage. He heard the last of them, as he left the ship, say, Here comes the check squad. What you say, boys? There was no answer. The guards were gone, and there was a new sound in the corridors, the heavy marching feet of what the guard called the check squad. There seemed to be a lot of them. Their inspection began in the engine rooms and moved methodically upward. From the sounds, they seemed to be opening every door on the ship and searching every room and closet. Barrent held the needle beam in his perspiring hand and wondered where in all the territory of the ship he could hide. He would have to assume that they were going to look everywhere. In that case, his best chance lay in evading them and hiding in a section of the ship already searched. He slipped a respirator over his head and moved into the corridor. Chapter 23 Half an hour later, Barrent still hadn't figured out a way of getting past the check squad. They had finished inspecting the lower levels and were moving up to the control room deck. Barrent could hear them marching down the hallways. He kept on walking, a hundred yards in front, trying to find some way of hiding. There should be a staircase at the end of this passageway. He could take it down to a different level, a part of the ship which had already been searched. He hurried on, wondering if he were wrong about the location of the staircase. He still had only the haziest idea of the layout of the ship. If he were wrong, he would be trapped. He came to the end of the corridor, and the staircase was there. The footsteps behind him sounded closer. He started down, peering backwards over his shoulder, and ran head first into a man's huge chest. Barrent flung himself back, bringing his plastic gun to bear on the enormous figure. But he stopped himself from firing. The thing that stood in front of him was not human. It stood nearly seven feet high, dressed in a black uniform with Inspection Team, Android B-212, stenciled on its front. Its face was a stylization of a human's, cleverly sculptured out of putty-colored plastic. Its eyes glowed a deep, impossible red. It swayed on two legs, balancing carefully, looking at Barrent, moving slowly toward him. Barrent backed away, wondering if a needle-beam could stop it. He never had a chance to find out, for the android walked past him and continued up the stairs. Stenciled on the back of its uniform were the words, Rodent Control Division. This particular android, Barrent realized, was programmed only to look for rats and mice. The presence of a stowaway had made no impression on it. Presumably the other androids were similarly specialized. He stayed in an empty storage room on a lower level until he heard the sounds of the androids leaving. Then he hurried back to the control room. No guards came aboard. 
Exactly on schedule, the big ship left the checkpoint. Destination, Earth. The rest of the journey was uneventful. Barrent slept and ate, and before the craft entered subspace, watched the endless spectacle of the stars through the viewport. He tried to visualize the planet he was coming to, but no pictures formed in his mind. What sort of people built huge starships but failed to equip them with a crew? Why did they send out inspection teams, then give those teams the narrowest and most specialized sort of vision? Why did they have to deport a sizable portion of their population and then fail to control the conditions under which the deportees lived and died? Why was it necessary for them to wipe the prisoners' minds clean of all memory of Earth? Barrent couldn't think of any answers. The control room clocks moved steadily on, counting off the minutes and hours of the trip. The ship entered, then emerged from subspace, and went into deceleration orbit around a blue and green world which Barrent observed with mixed emotions. He found it hard to realize that he was at last returning to Earth. Chapter 24 The starship landed at noon on a brilliant sunlit day somewhere on Earth's North American continent. Barrent had planned on waiting for darkness before leaving, but the control room screens flashed an ancient and ironic warning. All passengers and crew must disembark at once. Ship rigged for full decontamination procedure. Twenty minutes. He didn't know what was meant by full decontamination procedure, but since the crew was emphatically ordered to leave, a respirator might not provide much safety. Of the two dangers, leaving the ship seemed the lesser. The members of Group Two had given a good deal of thought to the clothing Barrent would wear upon debarkation. Those first minutes on Earth might be crucial. No cunning could help him if his clothing was obviously strange, outlandish, alien. Typical Earth clothing was the answer, but the group wasn't sure what the citizens of Earth wore. One part of the group had wanted Barrent to dress in their reconstructed approximation of civilian dress. Another part felt that the guard's uniform he had worn on board would see him through his arrival on Earth as well. Barrent himself had agreed with a third option, which felt that a mechanic's one-piece coverall would be least noticeable around a spacefield, and suffer the least change of style over the years. In the towns and cities this disguise might put him at a disadvantage, but he had to meet one problem at a time. He quickly stripped off his guard's uniform. Underneath he wore the lightweight coveralls. His needle-beam concealed, a collapsible lunchbox in his hand, Barrent walked down the corridor to the landing stage. He hesitated for a moment, wondering if he should leave the weapon on the ship. He decided not to part with it. An inspection would reveal him anyhow. With the needle-beam he would have a chance of breaking away from police. He took a deep breath and marched out of the ship and down the landing stage. There were no guards, no inspection party, no police, no army units, and no customs officials. There was no one at all. Far to one side of the wide field he could see rows of starcraft glistening in the sun. Straight ahead of him was a fence, and in it was an open gate. Barrent walked across the field quickly, but without obvious haste. He had no idea why it was all so simple. Perhaps the secret police on Earth had more subtle means of checking on passengers from starships. He reached the gate. 
There was no one there except a bald middle-aged man and a boy of perhaps ten. They seemed to be waiting for him. Barrent found it hard to believe that these were government officials. Still, who knew the ways of Earth? He passed through the gate. The bald man holding the boy by the hand walked over to him. I beg your pardon, the man said. Yes? I saw you come from the starship. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions? Not at all, Barrent said, his hand near the coverall zipper beneath which lay his needle beam. He was certain now that the bald man was a police agent. The only thing that didn't make sense was the presence of the child, unless the boy was an agent in training. The fact of the matter is, the man said, my boy Ronnie here is doing a thesis for his tenth grade master's degree on starships. So I wanted to see one, Ronnie said. He was an undersized child with a pinched intelligent face. He wanted to see one, the man explained. I, I told him it wasn't necessary, since all the facts and pictures are in the encyclopedia, but he wanted to see one. It gives me a good opening paragraph, Ronnie said. Of course, Barrent said, nodding vigorously. He was beginning to wonder about the man. For a member of the secret police, he was certainly taking a devious route. You work on the ships? Ronnie asked. That's right. How fast do they go? In real or subspace? Barrent asked. The question seemed to throw Ronnie off his stride. He pushed out his lower lip and said, Gee, I didn't know they went into subspace. He thought for a moment. As a matter of fact, I don't think I know what subspace is. Barrent and the boy's father smiled understandingly. Well, Ronnie said, how fast do they go in real space? A hundred thousand miles an hour, Barrent said, naming the first figure that came into his head. The boy nodded, and his father nodded. Very fast, the father said. And much faster in subspace, of course, Barrent said. Of course, the man said. Starships are very fast indeed. They have to be quite long distances involved. Isn't that right, sir? Very long distances, Barrent said. How is the ship powered? Ronnie asked. In the usual way, Barrent told him, we had triplex boosters installed last year, but that comes more under the classification of auxiliary power. I've heard about those triplex boosters, the man said. Tremendous things. They're adequate, Barrent said judiciously. He was certain now that this man was just what he purported to be, a citizen with no particular knowledge of spacecraft, simply bringing his son to the starport. How do you get enough air? Ronnie asked. We generate our own, Barrent said, but air isn't any trouble. Water's the big problem. Water isn't compressible, you know. It's hard to store in sufficient quantities. And then there's the navigation problem when the ship emerges from subspace. What is subspace? Ronnie asked. In effect, Barrent said, it's simply a different level of real space, but you can find all that in your encyclopedia. Of course you can, Ronnie. The boy's father said, we, we mustn't keep the pilot standing here. I'm sure he has many important things to do. I am rather rushed, Barrent said. Look around all you want. Good luck on your thesis, Ronnie. Barrent walked for fifty yards, his spine tingling, expecting momentarily to feel the blow of a needle beam or a shotgun. But when he looked back, the father and son were turned away from him, earnestly studying the great vessel. 
Barrent hesitated a moment, deeply bothered. So far the whole thing had been entirely too easy, suspiciously easy. But there was nothing he could do but go on. The road from the starport led past a row of storage sheds to a section of woods. Brent walked until he was out of sight. Then he left the road and went into the woods. He had had enough contact with people for his first day on Earth. He didn't want to stretch his luck. He wanted to think things over, sleep in the woods for the night, and then in the morning go to a city or town. He pushed his way past dense underbrush into the forest proper. Here he walked through shaded groves of giant oaks. All around him was the chirp and bustle of unseen bird and animal life. Far in front of him was a large white sign nailed to a tree. Barrent reached it and read, Forestdale National Park. Picnickers and campers welcome. Barrent was a little disappointed. Even though he realized that there would be no virgin wilderness so near a starport, in fact, on a planet as old and as highly developed as Earth, there was probably no virgin land at all except what had been preserved in national forests. The sun was low on the horizon, and there was a chill in the long shadows thrown across the forest floor. Barrent found a comfortable spot under a gigantic oak, arranged leaves for a bed, and lay down. He had a great deal to think about. Why, for example, hadn't guards been posted at Earth's most important contact point, an interstellar terminus? Did security measures start later at the towns and cities, or was he already under some sort of surveillance, some infinitely subtle spy system that followed his every movement and apprehended him only when ready? Or was that too fanciful? Could it be that— Good evening, a voice said close to his right ear. Brent flung himself away from the voice in a spasm of nervous reaction, his hand diving for his needle-beam. "'And a very pleasant evening it is,' the voice continued, here in Forestdale National Park. "'The temperature is 78.2 degrees Fahrenheit, humidity 23 percent, barometer steady at 29.9. Old campers, I'm sure, already recognize my voice. For the new nature-lovers among you, let me introduce myself. I—' am Oki, your friendly oak tree. I'd like to welcome all of you, old and new, to your friendly national forest." Sitting upright in the gathering darkness, Barrent peered around, wondering what kind of a trick this was. The voice really did seem to come from the giant oak tree. "'The enjoyment of nature,' said Oki, "'is now easy and convenient for everyone. You can enjoy complete seclusion and still be no more than a ten-minute walk from public transportation. For those who do not desire seclusion, we have guided tours at nominal cost through these ancient glades. Remember to tell your friends about your friendly national park. The full facilities of this park are waiting for all lovers of the great outdoors." A panel in the tree opened. Out slid a bedroll, a thermos bottle, and a box supper. "'I wish you a pleasant evening,' said Oki, amid the wild splendor of nature's wonderland. And now, the National Symphony Orchestra, under the direction of Otter Krug, brings you the Upland Glades by Ernesto Nestracala, recorded by the National North American Broadcasting Company. This is your friendly oak tree, signing off. Music emanated from several hidden speakers. Barrent scratched his head.
Then, deciding to take matters as they came, he ate the food, drank the coffee from the thermos, unrolled the bedroll, and lay down. Sleepily he contemplated the notion of a forest wired for sound, equipped with food and drink, and none of it more than ten minutes from public transportation. Earth certainly did a lot for her citizens. Presumably they liked this sort of thing. Or did they? Could this be some huge and subtle trap which the authorities had set for him? He tossed and turned for a while, trying to get used to the music. After a while it blended into the background of wind-blown leaves and creaking branches. Barent went to sleep. Chapter 25 In the morning the friendly oak tree dispensed breakfast and shaving equipment. Barent ate, washed, and shaved, and set out for the nearest town. He had his objectives firmly in mind. He had to establish some sort of foolproof disguise and he had to make contact with Earth's underground. When this was accomplished, he had to find out as much as he could about Earth's secret police, military dispositions, and the like. Group Two had worked out a procedure for accomplishing these objectives. As Brent came to the outskirts of a town, he hoped that the group's methods would work. So far, the Earth he was on had very little resemblance to the Earth which the group had reconstructed. He walked down interminable streets lined with small white cottages. At first he thought every house looked the same. Then he realized that each had one or two small architectural differences. But instead of distinguishing the houses, these niggling differences simply served to point up the monotonous similarities. There were hundreds of these cottages, stretching as far as he could see, each of them set upon a little plot of carefully tended grass. Their genteel sameness depressed him. Unexpectedly he missed the ridiculous, clumsy, makeshift individuality of Omegan buildings. He reached a shopping center. The stores repeated the pattern set by the houses. They were low, discreet, and very similar. Only a close inspection of window displays revealed differences between a food store and a sports shop. He passed a small building with a sign that read, Robot Confessional open twenty-four hours a day. It seemed to be some sort of church. The procedure set by Group Two for locating the underground on Earth was simple and straightforward. Revolutionaries, he had been told, are found in greatest quantity among a civilization's most depressed elements. Poverty breeds dissatisfaction. The have-nots want to take from those who have. Therefore, the logical place to look for subversion is in the slums. It was a good theory. The trouble was, Barent couldn't find any slums. He walked for hours past neat stores and pleasant little homes, playgrounds and parks, scrupulously tended farms, and then past more houses and stores. Nothing looked much better or worse than anything else. By evening he was tired and footsore. As far as he could tell, he had discovered nothing of significance. Before he could penetrate any deeper into the complexities of Earth, he would have to question the local citizens. It was a dangerous step, but one which he could not avoid. He stood near a clothing store in the gathering dusk and decided upon a course of action. He would pose as a foreigner, a man newly arrived in North America, from Asia or Europe. In that way he should be able to ask questions with a measure of safety. A man was walking toward him a plump, ordinary-looking fellow in a brown business tunic. Barent stopped him. 
I beg your pardon, he said. I'm a stranger here, just arrived from Rome. Really? the man said. Yes, I'm afraid I don't understand things over here very well, Barrett said with an apologetic little laugh. I can't seem to find any cheap hotels. If you could direct me. Citizen, do you feel all right? the man asked, his face hardening. As I said, I'm a foreigner, and I'm looking— Now look, the man said, you know as well as I do that there aren't any outlanders any more. There aren't? Of course not. I've been in Rome. It's just like here in Wilmington. Same sort of houses and stores. No one's an outlander any more. Brent couldn't think of anything to say. He smiled nervously. Furthermore, the man said, there are no cheap lodgings anywhere on earth. Why should there be? Who would stay in them? Who indeed, Brent said. I guess I've had a little too much to drink. No one drinks any more, the man said. I don't understand. What sort of game is this? What sort of game do you think it is? Brent asked, falling back on a technique which the group had recommended. The man stared at him, frowning. I think I get it, he said. You must be an opinioner. Hmm, Brent said noncommittally. Sure, that's it, the man said. You're one of those citizens goes around asking people's opinions for surveys and that sort of thing, right? You've made a very intelligent guess, Barrent said. Well, I don't suppose it was too hard. Opinioners are always walking around trying to get people's attitudes on things. I would have spotted you right away if you'd been wearing opinioners' clothing. The man started to frown again. How come you aren't dressed like an opinioner? I just graduated, Barrent said. Haven't had a chance to get the clothes. Oh, well, you should get the proper wear, the man said sententiously. How can a citizen tell your status? Just a test sampling, Barrent said. Thank you for your cooperation, sir. Perhaps I'll have a chance to interview you again in the near future. Any time, the man said. He nodded politely and walked off. Barrent thought about it and decided that the occupation of opinioner was perfect for him. It would give him the all-important right to ask questions, to meet people, to find out how Earth lived. He would have to be careful, of course, not to reveal his ignorance, but working with circumspection he should have a general knowledge of this civilization in a few days. First he would have to buy opinioners' clothing. That seemed to be important. The trouble was he had no money with which to pay for it. The group had been unable to duplicate earth money. They couldn't even remember what it looked like. But they had provided him with a means of overcoming even that obstacle. Barrent turned and went into the nearest costumers. The proprietor was a short man with china-blue eyes and a salesman's ready smile. He welcomed Barrent and asked how he could be of service. I need opinioner's clothing, Barrent told him. I just graduated. Of course, sir, the owner said, and you've come to the right place for it. Most of the smaller stores don't carry the clothing for anything but the more, uh, common professions. But here at Jules Wonderson's, we have ready wear for all of the 520 major professions listed in the Civil Status Almanac. I am Jules Wonderson. A pleasure, Barrent said. Have you a ready wear in my size? I'm sure I have, Wonderson said. Would you care for a regular or a special? A regular will do nicely. Most new opinioners prefer the special, Wonderson said. 
little extra simulated handmade touches increase the public's respect. In that case, I'll take the special. Yes, sir. Though, if you could wait a day or two, we will be having in a new fabric, a simulated home loom, complete with natural weaving mistakes, for the man of status discrimination, a real prestige item. Perhaps I'll come back for that, Barrent said. Right now I need a ready-wear. Of course, sir, Wonderson said, disappointed but hiding it bravely. If you'll wait just one little minute. After several fittings, Barrent found himself wearing a black business suit with a thin edge of white piping around the lapels. To his inexperienced eye, it looked almost exactly like the other suits Wonderson had on display for bankers, stockbrokers, grocers, accountants, and the like. But for Wonderson, who talked about the banker's lapel and the insurance agent's drape, the differences were as clear as the gross status symbols of Omega. Barrent decided it was just a question of training. There, sir, Wonderson said, a, a perfect fit and a fabric guaranteed for a lifetime, all for thirty-nine ninety-five. Excellent, Barrent said. Now, about the money. Yes, sir. Barrent took the plunge. I haven't any. You haven't, sir? That's quite unusual. Yes. It is, Barrent said. However, I do have certain articles of value. From his pocket he took three diamond rings with which the group on Omega had supplied him. These stones are genuine diamonds, as any jeweler will be glad to attest, if you would take one of them until I have the money for payment. But, sir, Wonderson said, diamonds and such have no intrinsic value. They haven't since twenty-three, when von Blahn wrote the definitive work destroying the concept of scarcity value. Of course, Barrent said, at a loss for words. Wonderson looked at the rings. I suppose these have a sentimental value, though. Certainly. We've had them in the family for generations. In that case, Wonderson said, I wouldn't want to deprive you of them. Please, no arguments, sir. Sentiment is the most priceless of emotions. I couldn't sleep nights if I took even one of these family heirlooms from you. But there's the matter of payment. Pay me at your leisure. You mean you'll trust me even though you don't know me? Most certainly, Wonderson said. He smiled archly. Trying out your opinioner's methods, aren't you? Well, even a child knows that our civilization is based upon trust, not collateral. It is axiomatic that even a stranger is to be trusted until he has conclusively and unmistakably proven otherwise. Haven't you ever been cheated? Of course not. Crime is non-existent these days. In that case, Barrent asked, what about Omega? I beg your pardon, sir? Omega, the prison planet. You must have heard of it. I think I have, Wonderson said cautiously. Well, I should have said that crime is almost non-existent. I suppose there will always be a few congenital criminal types easily recognizable as such, but I'm told they don't amount to more than ten or twelve individuals a year out of a population of nearly two billion. He smiled broadly. My chances of meeting one are exceedingly rare. Barrent thought about the prison ships constantly shuttling back and forth between Earth and Omega, dumping their human cargo and returning for more. He wondered where Wonderson got his statistics. For that matter, he wondered where the police were. He had seen no military uniform since leaving the starship. 
He would have liked to ask about it, but it seemed wiser to discontinue that line of questioning. Thank you very much for the credit, Barrent said. I'll be back with the payment as soon as possible. Of course you will, Wonderson said, warmly shaking Barrent's hand. Take your time, sir. No rush at all. Barrent thanked him again and left the store. He had a profession now, and if other people believed as Wonderson did, he had unlimited credit. He was on a planet that seemed at first glance to be a utopia. The utopia presented certain contradictions, of course. He hoped to find out more about them over the next few days. Down the block, Barrent found a hotel called the Bite-A-Bit. He engaged a room for the week, on credit. Chapter 26 In the morning, Barrent asked directions to the nearest branch of the public library. He decided that he needed as much background out of books as he could get. With a knowledge of the history and development of Earth's civilization, he would have a better idea of what to expect and what to watch out for. His opinioner's clothing allowed him access to the closed shelves where the history books were kept. But the books themselves were disappointing. Most of them were Earth's ancient history from earliest beginnings to the dawn of atomic power. Barrent skimmed through them. As he read, some memories of prior reading returned to him. He was able to jump quickly from Periclean Greece to Imperial Rome, to Charlemagne and the Dark Ages, from the Norman Conquest to the Thirty Years' War, and then to a rapid survey of the Napoleonic era. He read with more care about the World Wars. The book ended with the explosion of the first atomic bombs. The other books on the shelf were simply amplifications of various stages of history he had found in the first book. After a great deal of searching, Barrent found a small work entitled The Post-War Dilemma, Volume 1, by Arthur Whittler. It began where other histories had left off, with the atomic bombs exploding over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Barrent sat down and began to read carefully. He learned about the Cold War of the 1950s, when several nations were in possession of atomic and hydrogen weapons. Already, the author stated, the seeds of a massive and stultifying conformity were present in the nations of the world. In America there was the frenzied resistance to communism. In Russia and China there was the frenzied resistance to capitalism. One by one, all the nations of the world were drawn into one camp or the other. For purposes of internal security, all countries relied upon the newest propaganda and indoctrination techniques. All countries felt they needed, for survival's sake, a rigid adherence to state-approved doctrines. The pressure upon the individual to conform became both stronger and subtler. The dangers of war passed. The many societies of Earth began to merge into a single superstate. But the pressure to conform, instead of lessening, grew more intense. The need was dictated by the continued explosive increase in population and the many problems of unification across national and ethnic lines. Differences in opinion could be deadly. Too many groups now had access to the supremely deadly hydrogen bombs. Under the circumstances, deviant behavior could not be tolerated. Unification was finally completed. The conquest of space went on, from moonship to planetship to starship. But Earth became increasingly rigid in its institutions. A civilization more inflexible than anything produced by medieval Europe punished any opposition to existing customs, 
habits, beliefs. These breaches of the social contract were considered major crimes, as serious as murder or arson. They were punished similarly. The antique institutions of secret police, political police, informers, all were used. Every possible device was brought to bear toward the all-important goal of conformity. For the nonconformists, there was Omega. Capital punishment had been banned long before, but there was neither room nor resources to take the growing number of criminals who crammed prisons everywhere. The world leaders finally decided to transport these criminals to a separate prison world, copying a system which the French had used in Guiana and New Caledonia, and the British had used in Australia and early North America. Since it was impossible to rule Omega from Earth, the authorities didn't try. They simply made sure that none of the prisoners escaped. That was the end of Volume 1. A note at the end said that Volume 2 was to be a study of contemporary Earth. It was entitled The Status Civilization. The second volume was not on the shelves. Berent asked the librarian and was told it had been destroyed in the interests of public safety. Berent left the library and went to a little park. He sat and stared at the ground and tried to think. He had expected to find an earth similar to the one described in Whitler's book. He had been prepared for a police state, tight security controls, a repressed populace, and a growing air of unrest. But that, apparently, was the past. So far he hadn't even seen a policeman. He had observed no security controls, and the people he had met did not seem harshly repressed. Quite the contrary. This seemed like a completely different world. Except that year after year the ships came to Omega with their cargoes of brainwashed prisoners. Who arrested them? Who judged them? What sort of a society produced them? He would have to find out the answers himself. End of Part 5 of The Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley